Romanian pastor and seminary president Benny Costia recently shared with us the gripping account of his birth. His mother was assured that if she did not abort her unborn child, she would die in childbirth. In an amazing act of self-sacrificial love, she carried her son to term, she gave him birth, and she died. And those of you that were with us here a couple of weeks ago, as Pastor Costilla shared his testimony, you could just see visibly in him and consider as he shared honestly with us the tremendous sense of responsibility with which he has lived his life here on earth in light of his mother's sacrifice. His Christian mother sacrificed her life so that he could live his, and he has been busy about living it for Christ. Could you imagine if this man had become a worthless drug addict? Or if he had become a hopeless drunk or a vile criminal, or just a lazy bum. What a waste of a life that would be. Thankfully, we imagine the joyous reunion this distinguished man of God will have someday when he meets his mother in eternity. The one who gave him life, and the life that he has lived with that gift. But I'd like us to think, and I know that he would support these words wholeheartedly, I'd like us to think for a moment... This aspect of Pastor Costilla's story does not begin to compare with our individual stories as children of God. It pales in comparison. If you have turned from your sin to trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for salvation, if you have been born again, God has given to you eternal life. That life was purchased for you at the cost of Jesus' life. And one day, Christian, you are going to meet Jesus and give account for what you did with the spiritual life that He purchased for you. If Pastor Costilla is driven to honor his mother's sacrifice, and rightly so, Should we be any less motivated to honor our Savior's sacrifice or any less anxious for our homecoming to be a joyous occasion when we meet the One who has given us eternal life? We all have this story. We all live it every day and we're moving toward it and toward its realization as we meet Christ. I propose to you this morning that the realization that we have been given the gift of eternal life Coupled with the realization that we will someday stand before our great God and Savior to give account for our life should determine the fundamental orientation of our lives as believers and of our life as a church. It should determine it. It should dictate it. It should orient us in a certain way. We should daily pursue the Christian life as participants in the great cause of the great God and Savior. This orientation stands in stark contrast with the false teachers that Paul has been profiling here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. 
Beginning at verse 3, we find there he says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicion and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. They're spiritual bums. Saving life in Christ has been provided for them, and they're wasting life. Don't let it be that way with you, Timothy, says the Apostle Paul. Don't let it be that way with you, Verse 11, Paul commends an orientation that stands in stark contrast with those that are chasing false doctrine for their own selfish benefit with the kind of life that Timothy should be leading as he sets an example for the Ephesian believers. This passage contains five imperatives that give us a close look at the genuine Christian life and what it ought to be. May we set it up as a mirror and look into it this morning. But as for you, verse 11, and the first imperative, flee these things. As for you, O man of God, run from these things. The phrase, but for you, is a stark contrast to the false way of the false teachers. Outwardly, these teachers looked like Christians. They taught the Bible. They exhorted followers to devoted religious activity. They made a high moral call upon their life, it would seem. But the truth is that they were fundamentally disoriented. There was an infatuation with finding novel things in the Bible. They loved to present their speculative musings as the key to the Christian life. They were selfish They were proud, they were controversial, they were greedy and discontent, they were bored with the truth. And Timothy, his response was to stop them from such teaching, chapter 1. But here Paul is oriented more toward the idea that he is to run away from what they're doing. Run from falsehood, Timothy. Not only the teaching of falsehood, but the way of life that falsehood presents. It issues in a certain way of life. Run from it. Don't toy with their ideas. Don't wander near the vortex of their teachings, lest you be sucked in. He was to run away from the way that they oriented their religious lives, which people saw as so devout, so religious, so wise. Run says the Apostle. This was not a flight of fear, however, as much as it was a pursuit of something else. It wasn't merely running away from, but it was running away from so as to run after something else. Run from falsehood, first of all. Secondly, run after virtue, verse 11. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. You see the contrast here. Run from how they are living, but pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Timothy is to strive after righteousness. Let's put up the mirror. 
and look in today. What is righteousness? It is one, a righteous person is one who leads an upright moral life that is above reproach and characterized by integrity in all of its dealings with others. Righteousness. Godliness. One whose life is fully consecrated to God in conformity to God's Word. Faith. One whose life is marked by active trust in the living God. Love. One who joyfully pours out his or her life for the good of others and finds in them the image of God. Steadfastness. One who displays patient endurance and perseveres through trial with solid, victorious joy and trust in the Lord. Gentleness, a word virtually impossible to translate. It has two ideas with it. It's the opposite, first of all, of a proud and swaggering spirit that insists on getting glory for itself. But these two ideas bring together one who is able to endure wrong without complaining and growing small, while at the same time standing tall for others who have been wronged. Gentleness. It is a weightiness of person that is large in the midst of its own suffering and is large in behalf of others who suffer. Gentleness. I wonder, Christian, is the Christian life that you are leading marked by a never-ending pursuit of such moral integrity? You know, this list is impossible to fake. You can't turn this on one day. You cannot just imitate it. This is something that has to mark who you are to the core of your being. Is this your pursuit? It's impossible to produce in your own strength as well. If you're awake, if you're hearing it all, you're saying as as this list is read, I can't do that in my own strength. Such perseverance, such strength of heart, such godly orientation, such a relationship with other people. It's not in me, in myself, to produce this. It requires an intimate fellowship with God in the Spirit. A fellowship that bears us up in all of the twists and turns of life that come upon us. As if from a cannon sometimes. We can't prepare. It's who we are. Flee from falsehood. Pursue this way of life, this moral virtue of the Christian walk. And thirdly, fight for faith, Paul says to Timothy in the Spirit to us. Fight for faith, verse 12. Fight the good fight of the faith. This word fight is related to our English word agony. It was seldom used in a military context, as the word fight might seem to be for us, but more often used as an athletic term, referring to the agony of an athlete who endures past the point of normal physical strength. Some have been in that spot. You know what that means. You pass beyond where you believe your body can go, and you push it, and there's an agony that comes. And you push through it. And you love it in some strange way. 
And so with those who love the external, objective body of truth known as the faith, a dogged determination will be required from us. A disciplined effort will be required for the study of God's Word so that the truth is known. Do you know the agony of reading Scripture when you can't stay awake? The agony of reading the Word of God when your mind is torn in so many other directions. The agony of the discipline of the Word of God in your life. If you, as a reader of Scripture, simply sit around and wait until it feels good to you to read the Word, you'll never know this agony of the Christian servant. A determined effort to study God's Word, to know His truth. Sometimes it comes when you're feeling good and everything fits together, but often it's an agony, an effort. There's secondly the agonizing effort that will be required for the confrontation of false teaching. This is an agony that Timothy must take on. There are times when people hold truths dear, or hold ideas dear, and it's not the truth. And it will be difficult to go to them and to stop them from teaching what they're teaching and believing what they're believing. That can be extremely painful. Paul says, fight the good fight of faith. Go on in the agony of standing for the truth of God. A fourth imperative we find in the middle of verse 12, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Eternal life is a one-time gift that we receive from God. But having received that gift, eternal life is something we continue to pursue with perseverance. I already have it but not in its fullness. I already have it, and the evidence is that I am grasping for it. We need to, as Scripture unfolds, to understand this relationship. It's not a work salvation, a salvation that works, but it is rather salvation that works and will be consummated in glory. So Timothy is to reach out to lay hold of that to which God has effectually called him. Uh, The illustration that helps me in this regard is a picture of a father picking up his child and holding that child up to an apple tree where the child can reach out and grab an apple off the tree. A child could never reach that apple on his or her own, in their own strength, their own height is, is insufficient to get anywhere near that apple, but this little child is picked up by a parent and held to the place where they can reach out and grasp the apple. In this analogy, God is our Father and picks us up in his own, for His own purposes and grace and lifts us up in saving grace to reach for eternal life. To grasp something we could never achieve on our own strength, but to grasp that for which He has called us. He has given us life. He has given us salvation. He provides the height, so to speak. But that doesn't mean that we sit there in His arms and do nothing, but we grasp for the eternal life which He has given us as a gift. It's not a work salvation, but it's a salvation that works. And it is a salvation here in Timothy's life that fits the good confession that he made before many witnesses. You notice, 
about which, that is, about this eternal life, you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And we're not sure exactly what this means. But if you note carefully the connection between about which and eternal life, the confession in view is probably Timothy's baptism, where he confessed his newfound faith in Christ. It's difficult to know, but whatever the confession is, it's about this eternal life. And it's a confession that he makes in the presence of many witnesses, which doesn't seem to fit too well the idea of the elders gathered around him and placing their hands upon him, chapter 4 and verse 14. It sounds more like the assembly. Many witnesses have gathered together. Whatever the case, whatever the historical background, at some point in the past, Timothy confessed to a group of people that he had received eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. And he gave witness to that reception. Timothy, you made that confession. You have identified with the salvation that Jesus has given Grasp for it. Reach for that eternal life. Spend your life grasping the new life in Christ that you have been given and to which you are moving into glory. The fifth imperative will take a little bit longer to unpack, but that is to fulfill your stewardship. Verse 13, chapter 6, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul issues a formal charge to Timothy, invoking here the name of God who gave Timothy eternal life. He also invokes the name, you notice here, of Christ Jesus who made his own confession. Ironically, in his trial before Pontius Pilate, Jesus said virtually nothing. What is the good confession that Jesus made there? Perhaps it is just the words that he spoke, which was to agree that he was Messiah, that he was the King of the Jews. And that confession uniting together the Jews and the Romans against Christ and leading to his execution What Jesus did before Pontius Pilate was not say a lot of words. What he did was agree to who he was. And that's precisely what Timothy has done in his confession. To agree with whom Jesus is. To identify with his person. And so, in light of God who gives life and Jesus who made the confession of who he was, Paul charges Timothy to keep the commandment. This is probably referring to his faithfulness to the true doctrine, his ministry of the gospel and obedience to the moral demands. I'd like to land on this uh, later in the series, but we see this really building, don't we? This constant orientation toward the truth of God, coupled with the moral life that flows from belief in that true doctrine. Keep the commandment, Timothy. Hold true to the stewardship that has been given to you. You have been entrusted with a body of truth and with responsibilities in your moral walk. Hold true to this stewardship. And what's the motivation? In verse 14, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach, that is to uphold it faithfully, not to compromise it, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Timothy is to orient his ministry toward upholding the true doctrine. Ample motivation is supplied by the fact that he will someday meet Jesus Christ and give account for his life. The ultimate motivation is not that Paul may soon return to Ephesus. The ultimate motivation is that Christ may soon return to earth. Timothy needs to be ready to meet Christ. Technically, I think you're the reference to Christ's second coming when all will be judged and rewarded, the whole idea of his return and all that it encompasses. But whether it's in death, whether it's in rapture, whether it is in this accounting before Christ or wherever the accounting before Christ takes place and however he is to be ready for the Jesus who will be revealed and will return. which, verse 15, he will display at the proper time. That is, the revealing of Christ will be displayed at the right time. God is sovereign over history, and he has fixed a time for his son to return. The very thought gives Paul now doxological chills, and he runs off into a consideration of the greatness of the God that he and Timothy are serving. As he says there in verse 15, the middle of the verse, who, He who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Let us hear it. Let its truth settle down upon us. These are words that in some respect defy description and unpacking. Let us let them settle and hear of the greatness of our God. But then let us work through it. Just briefly, He is the blessed God, the God of all true and lasting happiness, who longs to benefit His people with goodness. This is our God, the blessed God. He is the only sovereign. He alone rules heaven and earth. He is indeed the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the ultimate power and authority. All authority flows through Him. Two human representatives on earth, whether godly or ungodly, He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, that is, God cannot die. This is not denying that human beings will live forever, but it is that God alone possesses immortality inherently. We gain immortality from God. He has no beginning and derives His immortal nature from no one. He is the immortal God, who dwells in unapproachable light, a blinding physical radiance that bears witness to God's glorious splendor, absolute purity, and penetrating truth. We sang that song this morning. "'Tis only the splendor of light hideth thee. God is full revelation of all that is true and real." But in our sin, in our humanity, we are limited from that truth and from a full perception of it simply by the glory of God. It is too great for us to behold. No one has seen Him, Paul says. 
This speaks of his utter holiness that no one can fully take in God or we would be consumed on the spot. It reminds us of Exodus 33 where Moses sees the trailing edge of God's glorious presence. That's as close as anyone has come. But no one has looked full into the glorious face of God. He's too holy for us even to see. It reminds us of Exodus 34 as Moses comes down off the mountain and his face shines because he is, has been with God. And I think here we need to really hone in and to consider our own relationship with the Lord and this glorious God. Underlying this doxology is the reality that our spiritual progress as Christians will never surpass our vision of God. It would probably be a good exercise for all of us sometimes to sit down and write out what we believe God is, who we believe that He is. Not to pass a test for a theology class, but to really analyze what is deep within our heart. What is your true vision of God? You are never going to advance past that vision. Indeed, that vision may be limiting your spiritual progress. We need to know Him for who He truly is. We need to see Him in all of His glory. And this is one of the prayers of my life for you as a church and for me as a child of God, is to see God more fully, to know Him for who He truly is, to get a sense of His true character and nature, and to be ever-growing to understand that more. There's nuances of God that as a child we can't handle. There are nuances of the nature and the character of God that as immature adults we cannot handle. But by the goodness of God, may He shine the light of who He truly is so that we see Him more and more accurately and that that vision transforms the way that we live and think, how we treat one another. You will grow into the likeness of the God that you behold. If that God is small, and if that God is shrinking, so will you be small and shrinking. It's so vital then that our vision of God grows increasingly accurate, increasingly glorious as we see Him in the pages of His revealed Word. As 2 Corinthians 3 puts it, we all, with unveiled face now, building off of Moses and his example, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It comes from the Lord. To be transformed by the vision of who God is, we must go to Him and plead with Him to see Him for who He truly is. Not some shortcut. Not some special truth that helps us take some quantum leap to gain a vision of God that isn't earned by anyone else who hasn't bought the book or gone to the seminar but by patient, persistent soaking in the truth of God's Word to day by day, over time, grow to know Him as He truly is.
how can I know if I'm on track? How can I know if my orientation is right? We really do see here, once again, two ways of the Christian life. One that's very busy and externally devout and is worthless. And one that is growing in the likeness of Christ and is alive and real. How do I know if I'm on track? Just a couple of test points for us to consider, and I hope that it simply spawns further discussion among all of us at dinner table today and tonight as we meet again and after service today. But I think one thing is that our orientation must be toward the Bible. If we're on track as Christians in the great cause of the great God, then we need to be Bible-oriented people. Not driven by novelty and speculative curiosity to find these unique keys to fix my life. Chapter 1, 3 through 5. Chapter 6, 3 through 5. But rather an orientation toward the Bible that seeks moral transformation. That seeks spiritual growth. That seeks Christ-like behavior. That is moving to see ways and discern ways in which I can relate to other people in a more honorable Christ-like fashion. That seeks ways and seeks conviction as to how I am to handle suffering in my life. That seeks to grow in the virtues of Christian character. That seeks to align its goals and dreams with the Word of God. Our orientation should be toward Scripture. As Paul has said to Timothy over and over, but I just repeat one earlier line from chapter 4 and verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And now in chapter 6 and verse 11, in righteousness, in godliness, in faith, in love, in steadfastness, in gentleness. To be such a person, I need to be oriented toward the revealed Word of God. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3 as we look at another apostle's, apostle's take on this very theme. And notice how he mixes together, brings together, the idea of those who are headed in the wrong direction and the place of the Word of God in transforming the believer. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 14. Therefore, beloved, 2 Peter 3.14 Since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. And we've been just reading about these matters in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Now notice what he says. There are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. These are people reading the Word of God, twisting it so that it destroys them. You, therefore, verse 17, Beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people And lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. 
Amen. You see the parallels between these two passages. They're profound. That's because Peter and Paul are on the same page. All liberal scholarship aside that loves to put these two at one another's neck. They're on the same page. They're tracking with Christ. It is the revealed truth of God that transforms us morally into the character of Jesus. And they're pursuing it, always resisting the false teaching and always staying on track to grow in the likeness of Christ. Our orientation should be toward the Bible if we're on track. If we're on track, secondly, our orientation should be toward the Christian life. Our orientation toward the Christian life should not be one of arbitrary self-denial of legitimate pleasures. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3. Remember, these false teachers forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. We have to be very cautious of this danger to set up rules and regulations that are not godly rules and regulations, but are simply self-gratifying, that are humanly religious and ritualistic. There's all kinds of things that we need to do in the true discipline of faith to say no. Godliness says no. It knows how to deny certain things. But we don't set these up as an arbitrary list. Rather, our orientation toward the Christian life should be one of zealous, disciplined reaching for Christ-like morality. Chapter 4 and verse 7, to exercise ourselves unto godliness. That's where the focus should be, and the present passage also. That we would discipline our lives and exercise them toward expressing, experiencing the eternal life that we have received in Christ. Our orientation toward the church, let's consider that thirdly. What is the motivation of our church participation? What is your motivation for participating in the life of the church? I think for many it is honestly guilt. They don't want to deal with the weight of guilt if they don't participate in the life of the church. For others, it's social connectedness. It's sort of an extended family, a a way of uh, knowing other people and having friends. For others, it is, it would appear to be, I don't think we cross this line as a church, but for some it seems to just be entertainment. It's just maybe the best show on the block for this day of the week. Come and just be entertained. For others, it is to satisfy the expectations of others. It may not even be any longer guilt before God as just the fact that it's just too hard to deal with the people in my life if I don't participate in the church. Why should we be here? This passage says so much to us. We should be gathered as a church and you should participate in this assembly as communal perseverance in the faith. That together we are pursuing the truth of God and the likeness of Christ, holding one another to account, encouraging one another forward, seeking together a community in which the Word of God can be taught so that we know the truth, and joining together as an assembly to carry on this project together. 
Fourthly, our orientation toward Christ. He is the giver of life, and we should be oriented toward Him as the one before whom we must give an account. There is a day, and this is where our hope rests, that when we see Christ, we will be like Him. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. There will be a day when the transformation is complete. I look forward to that day. We must set our sights upon it. And my orientation toward Christ should be thus, that I pursue Him and His likeness and His character and a relationship with Him that is ongoing fellowship. Let's turn to Titus chapter 2 and verse 11 just briefly. As was read earlier, we recited together or read together Titus chapter 2 verses 11 and 12. Let's consider again this point, our relationship with Christ and His coming. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Titus 2.11-12 Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. That's the cause of Christ. That's what He is up to He is coming back. He will reveal Himself in glory. And in the process, He is purifying to Himself a people who are zealous for good works. This should speak of how we orient our lives to the Bible. How we view the Christian life. How we look at the Christian church. How we view our relationship with Christ. His coming is soon. And Christian, we must ask then, are you actively participating in the great cause of the great God Are you making progress in this way of life? Are you preparing to meet Jesus Christ and to give account to Him for the investment that He has made in you? If you do not know Christ as your personal Savior, He's still coming. And you will meet Him. But I call you to consider the truth that He has offered eternal life to those who come and trust in Him. This is a gift for all of us. It's not something that we've earned. It's not something you must earn. It is a gift to be received by faith in the work of Jesus Christ crucified and risen as you turn from self and sin and embrace the salvation that He has provided and enter on to this great life. May those of us who know Him consider carefully our orientation today and continue to make progress in the faith. Let's bow for prayer.